So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here. And who'd have thunk it? It is our 50th episode. And I think you're going to love it. The feature interview this week is with an explorer. She's travelled the world with David Attenborough. And she touches on this trend that there is at the moment for micro-adventures. This idea that you should sometimes get up off the sofa and challenge yourself. So I think you're going to find it inspiring. You may not have yet set off for your annual summer holiday, and this interview just might make you think twice about whether you should book that all-inclusive in Ibiza for the same time next year, or whether instead you should uh, go zip-wiring with polar bears or something. Uh, Also, finally this week, Ollie Peart has reached the deadline on his challenges, so you'll hear the final update on that. Uh, And the foxhole this week is a feedback special, so you'll hear how or not Alex has helped man fans in the bedroom across our last 50 episodes. Uh, So it's a fun show this week, and um, whilst I'm in a celebratory mood on this significant anniversary, you'll forgive me if I knock out a few manbassadors. Why should I just do it at the end of the show? It's my show, I can do what I want. My name's in the title. Ollie Modern. Uh, Sarah in Norfolk says, Ollie, I've enjoyed your podcast since I don't know when, but being a woman of a certain age, 59, yes, really, I always felt I was looking through the door to the theatre and that I didn't really belong. However, your interviews are getting better and better. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, And I guess I really need to pay for my seat now. Uh, Sarah, you are most welcome. Uh, And please do take a seat in the dress circle. Your PayPal donation wasn't quite royal box level. Uh, And you are now, I'm proud to say, our ambassador for Norfolk. Uh, Amy in Minnesota as well says, Ollie, you warm the cockles of this Minnesotan's heart. It's very cold here. I love hearing about what's going on across the pond, and I'm happy to have started buying you a monthly beer. Uh, Thank you, Amy. You are the living exemplar of my business model. Uh, If not already taken, I'd love to grab the mantle of Manbassador of Minnesota. Keep up the good work. It will take my mind off our horrible precedent and soon-to-be non-existent health insurance. Uh, Amy, it's a pleasure. You are now officially Manbassador for Minnesota. Uh, And finally, Meredith in Georgia, USA, has written in to say, Ollie, I've been listening to your show from the very first episode. I got my husband into it. I wrote you an iTunes review during season one. And we are now both monthly beer money donors for the show. I'm fairly sure you don't currently have a ambassador for the US state of Georgia. So I was wondering if my husband, Josh, and I could be joint ambassadors. Thank you for your time considering this silly request. Uh, it's not silly, Meredith. Nothing 
could be more deeply solemn than being appointed to a senior ambassadorial role on behalf of your state. But yeah, I now proudly anoint you, Meredith and Josh, joint ambassadors for the state of Georgia, USA. Congratulations. Thank you, everyone. Uh, This is going to be our last show until season six begins at the end of October. So... Uh, savour it. In this week's show, you will learn how to get hold of some snail slime, you'll learn what consentacle porn is, and you'll learn why sleeping in a snow hole in Scotland is fun. No, honestly, it's fun. Let's go! On this week's Modern Man. We are all actually hardwired to want to be in situations that test us, even if we don't think we do. Escaping your predestined life and climbing your personal Everest. How to live adventurously. Turkish delight and then some afternoon delight. And Alex Fox revisits her greatest hits in a Foxhole Feedback Special. But first, it's time for all the trends you need to know about. It's the zeitgeist with the man whom at the end of season three was a carnivore. We had our rap party in Honest Burger. At the end of season four was a vegetarian. And now, as we speak to you at the end of season five is a fully-fledged vegan. It's Ollie Pitt. I'm not fully-fledged. Elaborate. I don't eat cheese and dairy stuff when I'm at home, but when I'm out and about, it's too difficult. So I'll have cheese and dairy. What are the trends we should be talking about this week? Uplit. Okay. So The Guardian are citing Uplit as the new trend in books. It's a, a type of novel or non-fiction book that's really optimistic rather than feel good so the difference is it Mm. provides you with everyday heroicism or human connection and love rather than say romance what makes this a trend then people are buying more of them an author called rowan coleman he says that because we're living in really dark times right people want a bit of an outlet they want to see that humans aren't that bad after all they're actually quite nice i see so it's it's basically saying Suppress that part of your brain that knows that people in the free world of their own volition will vote for Brexit and Trump. Yeah, <laughs> And exactly. tell yourself yeah, block that, that actually, of their own free volition, people are inherently good. Yes, exactly. Okay. Pe- people are nice, aren't they? People well, are good. I, I sort of see that. But the thing is, we did have a recession a decade ago. And I'm pretty sure that coincided with every book being about people's incredibly miserable childhood. So the two things don't necessarily correlate, do they? The world can be falling apart. And people can still really enjoy reading about children getting beaten up. What's that about? Actually, it ties in with what I was saying. Do you remember I I said that the last series of I'm a Celebrity? Yes. I really liked it because everybody was really nice to each other. everyone just got along. Yeah, Yeah, so I spotted this ages ago. People want to see people being nice to one another. That's the bigger trend, I think. It's not just within books. It's within everything. Why would you want to watch people being horrible to one another? So if people do want an uplift... Uh, What books should they be buying? Well, there's uh, some new releases coming out in September. Jamie Thurston's Kindness, The Little Things That Matter. Uh, But the one I think I'm going to be going for is uh, Diversify in October by June Sarpong. Sarpong's written an uplet. She has. Uh, And according to the blurb, it's going to be a fierce, empowering call to arms. How can it be fierce and uplifting? I suppose it can. Yeah, you can. Lions are, aren't they? Yeah, but lions, it depends on your perspective, doesn't it, if you're about to get eaten? Still be impressed I've seen one. Um, What other trends should we be looking at this week, Ollie? Male cosmetic counters. I mean, I haven't seen it in Debenhams. No, it's not a thing. And it's not going to be for another five to seven years. Wow, okay, you've really taken the brief with this slot and run with it. Vismay Sharma is the uh, UK boss of L'Oreal. 
they're basically saying that men's cosmetic counters are going to become a reality within five to seven years' time. You go in, and it will be much the same way as uh, you know it is for female counters. And you go, and you go oh, I've just you know I've got a little blemish here. Can I? Have you got any stuff? And they'll go, yeah, here's here's the no, stuff. No, that's not how it works. That's not how the female counters work. Is well, it? it's, not, I've, well, it's not. I've got a blemish. Can you cover it up? It's like, oh, let's have a day out. Let's play around. Let's make each other up. Oh, you look great. Let's spend two hours, you know, trying out different products we never actually buy. That's fun for a lot of women. I think it's never going to be like that for men. So I, I completely see where this trend is coming from because male beauty products now are mainstream, aren't they? And most men listening to this probably have tried a moisturiser, at least. Yeah, but this is different. But, this but is male I, makeup. Yes, exactly. I don't see men who wear makeup turning it into a day out in the way that at the moment women do in department stores. I don't know. Do women turn it into a day out? Yes, really. Really? I know it's weird. No, that is not, I don't, that possibly That's the thing. won't happen. It's like a spa day. It's like a cheap spa day. What Sharma says, though, he's saying that uh, the reason he thinks it's going to be a trend is because, uh, he, well, he describes this the generation that are, you know, coming up as the selfie generation. They really want to make sure that they look their best in their photos online. And I know you can get like digital beautifying apps and those kinds of things, but this is like one step further. And the actual the question that they're asking isn't if men decide to start adopting makeup it's when and mm. how mm. so they're trying to work out if it's going to be really big bold colors like bowie or if it's going to be like these subtle sort of i don't know pastely type tones and all that kind of stuff so they're, they're adamant this is going to be a thing right let's talk about your trends challenge we set you up this series to become a true trends insider uh, you've been updating us on a weekly basis with your success and or otherwise <laughs> uh, in getting through this particular list um, let's deal with the matters outstanding first. Mm-hmm. I'm almost anxious to ask, are you now Twitter verified? No. Okay, what's happened? I felt like I needed to really push this because they Oh, you realise 10 weeks in. Well, no, because they haven't got in touch with me after my last application. Yeah. So I thought, what's the best way to get in touch with Twitter? I've sent them a letter. A posted letter? I posted it, special delivery, tracked and all that stuff cost me six quid to post an A4 bit of paper, handwritten letter. So you're, you're getting Twitter, in touch so with a said. social media company yep. whose raison d'etre is saying things digitally in few characters yeah. and you're sending them a long letter in the post. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. Why did sense. you think that would be the best way to get in touch? It makes perfect sense, Ollie. Does it? Think how many times I get bombarded on a daily basis with nonsense online. They're trying to figure out ways that they can filter it without actually using real humans. I have forced them to use a human to read that letter. Okay. There's no way. You should see the handwriting. It's awful. No machine is oh ever going to read that. You didn't that. write it in green ink, did you? They might screw it up and throw it in the bin. The point is, you, I you know that someone's going to read it. You've no, made I haven't. it even harder for them to say yes or no, haven't I you? I don't think it's complicated things at all. If I worked at Twitter, I'd read that and go, do you know what? They've really tried. But that's not the criterion, is it? To be verified that they've tried. Yeah, but I fulfil the criteria. You do fulfil the criteria. But you it, just made it hard for yourself. No, this whole series, you've made it hard for them to say yes. I fulfil it. And just the stop fucking around. You've just sent them a letter in the post. What are they going to do with it? They're going to have to refer it up to someone who won't know what to do. No, they've got me in some kind of like limbo land. I'm pending. Yes. And it's it's, it's, it's an algorithm that decides it. So I've forced them to get a human to go, well, he does fulfil the criteria. Let's just... Right. So they haven't read it. And as far as you know, they haven't responded to it. No. Have you succeeded in getting tickets to the London transfer of Hamilton? I mean, it sounded very unlikely from last week's conversation. No, but do you know what? I got so close. What, closer than Janine? Yeah, much closer than Janine. So a few people got in touch after hearing the Janine story because a few people know Janine. And they said, not surprised she was like that, but (laughs) actually she's she's not too bad. She's known for not suffering fools, so Mm. I'm a fool. 
But that meant that people got in touch because they knew her. And a chap called Ollie Southgate got in touch. And he lives in Canada. British guy uh-huh. lives in Canada. And he has a ticket for Hamilton. And he was, <laughs> like, he was like, well, look, why don't I give you my ticket? It's in December. I was like, well, that's great. Let's do that. Wow. So we went through the process trying to sort You know, we didn't specify VIP tickets or anything. We just no, specified getting a ticket. We went through the process and... What do you mean you the process? Ca- well, because you... To transfer the ticket, because it's got his name on it. Oh, I see. Uh, and you can't. You can't transfer tickets. It's fraud, apparently. You can't do it. What? Yeah. But what if he just doesn't want the ticket anymore? Does he have to go back into a lottery pool or something? Well, no, he just loses his money. And that's what I'm saying about the theatre industry. That's why I'm going to boycott it. Okay, and the the one other outstanding uh, matter was the parliamentary ghost train. I could not give a shit, but Matt is insistent that you try. Well, have you tried? I, no. No. No, I don't give a shit either. Right. Right, but the rest of the list, you've done pretty well. You've held Nando's black card. Chicken checks too. You've sort of become a Freemason. Freemason's arms. You met one. Mm-hmm. You've sat at a chef's table. Yeah, a cook's kitchen in her own home. You've joined an elite dating app. Hello, ladies. You've acquired AAA access to a festival. Cheers, Jim Taylor. John McClure. And you tried the latest cult skincare treatment or product. Second latest, because look down here. Oh, you've got another one. Yeah, you remember I told you about that snail stuff? Yeah, you couldn't get hold of it. I could get hold of it. It was on Amazon Prime. I didn't know. Oh. <laughs> well, no, because I was looking in all the like the the exclusive shops and stuff, and I thought I actually haven't checked Amazon. How I'll much is it? Fifteen quid. Okay, we'll but re- we'll thirty quid in that. the posh shops. So if you want this stuff, yeah, Amazon. What's anyway, it called? Multifunction formula, all-in-one snail repair cream, and it's by a brand called Myzon, who are based in South Korea, and they they love sticking snails in stuff. With your vegan status, how do you feel about products made from snails? I can't use it because I'm vegan. How convenient. Apparently, the way that they get it, they have this like purpose-built glass, and the snails sort of crawl over it, and, and and all the juice like leaks out, and then they stick it in this gunky, horrible. Put your finger in it. I mean, do you think it's bullshit, or do you think there's because it is a trend? I've read about this now as well since you mentioned it. Snail repair cream. Mm-hmm. Do you think they have recently discovered that there's this incredible repairing quality for human skin in snail gunk, or is this just a fad? And I'm about to smear something on my face that is just inherently hilarious. Well, rather than thinking, so two people got in touch about this. Rather uh, than thinking, a- Amy and Melanie got in <laughs> it's touch. A new name for the slurs. <laughs> well, no, because I thought I'm vegan, so I can't try it. Yeah. So Melanie offered to try it for me because she's got. Got some. She lives in Finland. She's a man fan. She's a man fan. Uh-huh. And she was going to send it to me originally, but it would have just taken ages. So uh, I said, well, how about you try it out and then let me know how you get on and then I'll tell everyone in the show. Okay. What did uh, man fan Melanie from Finland make of it? Well, initially she was like, I can't believe I'm putting this stuff on my face. Yeah. But four days later, she says that she loves it. Oh, really? And she has noticed an improvement in her skin tone. Okay. I'm putting it on my face now. Can't it's quite cold. The snail's known for being cold. I think I preferred the intense tightening serum that we tried last week. There is definitely something... There's a gunky quality. Gunky. It's a bit Alex Fox, isn't it? It does feel quite sexual, yeah, in its Um, nature. Oh, God. Okay, so I've put it on and my face feels um, moistened. The idea behind it is that snail slime is like bacteria and UV radiation and all that kind of stuff. It's got everything in there. Apparently, snails have all these qualities. So they thought, well, let's milk them, stick it in a pot. (laughs) And sell it. They're doing well. 15 quid a jar. And on the metaphor of milking a snail, we almost end this season of The Zeitgeist. Um, but Ollie, I'm afraid we did add an extra challenge to your list of challenges last week. Yes. You said, I mean, you pretty much volunteered to do this, that it would be easy to set us up with a cryptocurrency donation platform for our beer money. Mm. How did it go? Uh, turns out doing it, you can do it. But it is quite complicated. How many hours have you spent doing this? Genuinely, probably about yeah. an hour and a half. 
Okay, see, time's money. Time's money. Yeah, that's Are you going to earn an hour and a half out of this? No, definitely not. No. No. I'm expensive. This is why cryptocurrency is, is a problem at the moment. But yeah, I got to the stage of being able to create this button. It's just really... It's not as easy as it should be. No, it's it, and it should be really easy because people would just use it. Well, you say people would use it. I say no nerds would use it. And that's why I was resistant to it. But we do have some nerds listening. Well, nerds and, already use it. That's um, the thing. Yeah, and I'm happy to take money in any which way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the standard unit of beer money that people can donate to the show if they want to support this show is £3.47. Yeah. Uh, you can do that now just on our website using PayPal or your credit card. Just go to modernman.co.uk and click beer money. Mm-hmm. I will try to embed your weird form. Yep. So if there's then a link on that which says, and you can also pay us with cryptocurrency, then well done. Your link has been successful. And if I can't, then sorry, nerds, you can't. Exactly. Just pay us using PayPal as well. You probably had one of those for 20 years. There was nothing wrong with it, was there? No, just pay us with that. Or post cash. And with that, Ollie, we have reached the end of this season of Zeitgeists. How was it for you? We've made you work a little bit harder. Yeah, it was um, expensive in both time and money. Yeah. yeah. But, but it... so satisfying, wasn't it? Getting to talk to people like Janine and... Oh, um, yeah, that was memorable. Going on trains that mm. weren't quite the right train you were supposed to be on. <laughs> hey, the train was good. Highlight for me was the festival. Yes, VIP access to a festival. That was really good. There you are. You cling on to that memory. Um, Ollie, I'm sure you'd be up for this. If people have a challenge they'd like you to try next season. Yes, go on. Uh, then they can uh, go to the feedback form on our website. I didn't know this. And, uh, and suggest it. Great. Well, it's inevitable, isn't it? You've got through your list of 10. But it's in what their are we hands do with you now, next is it? Time? Rather than yours. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. Listeners, it's in your hands. What would you like Ollie Pitt to do next season? Mm. <laughs> He sounds so up for it. <laughs> oh. He's the most reluctant. Uh, you not see how tired I am. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Have some snail cream. I'm not touching that. Now, what is the most adventurous thing you've ever done? For me, it was probably completely inadvisedly swimming across Lake Malawi wearing only swimming trunks. I had no support boat, I had no supplies, and I was swimming to an island that was, it turned out, much further away than it first appeared. Uh, But I was 18, and I was on my gap year, and honestly, what's the point of having one of those, unless you nearly kill yourself? Uh, But since then, I I haven't really been involved in anything very adventurous at all. I'm, I'm quite happy, frankly, getting my fill, watching other people suffer on the island with Bear Grylls. But World record-holding explorer Belinda Kirk, she's built differently. She's walked across Nicaragua, she's searched for camels in China's desert of death, and she's led dozens of expeditions around the world. But even for her, it all started with a gap year trip to Kenya. I think it's pretty normal to be an 18-year-old and you've been through the systems, haven't you? You either go to school and university or you go into school and then an apprenticeship or a traineeship or something like that. We're all put into systems, and and this was something that I decided completely for myself. My parents were actually pretty much against it. I had a call. It was kind of a calling. Sounds a bit, bit, bit wanky, actually. <laughs> I just had a. But if it's true, I, there's no better word for it, is there? Maybe, maybe. I, an instinct. An instinct. Yeah, I just had to do it. I just knew I had to go. And I had complied. I had been compliant. I had done well at school. I'd worked hard. I hadn't got in trouble. I'd been too compliant, if you ask me. Now, looking back, I think being compliant is not always a good thing. But I had towed the line and it was time for me to do something I wanted to do before I got back on the merry-go-round and got back into the whole university thing. 
So off I went and um, I felt like I was me for the first time. I felt like I was really good at stuff as well. Practical stuff. Practical stuff, being in nature, being in environments where you're tested and you have to make decisions quickly, being in situations where you're not sure what's going to happen next and it's actually quite exciting. Okay, so give us an example. Well, I had two pretty bad experiences, which would probably have sent most people home. So I went up to Nairobi and I, the first night I got there and sort of one of the first nights away from having been in part of a team, I met these local ladies and hang out with these local ladies for the evening. After several bars, we ended up in a brothel and these local ladies were prostitutes. Mm. And I didn't know how the hell I was going to get out, actually. Had they intentionally been grooming you? I think probably because there's a big white sla- there there is a white slave trade, and I was 18, green as hell, didn't know anything, long blonde hair, and with travelling on my own, I would could have just disappeared that night so easily. Anyway, this big Australian dude came up to me, and he and there was various people trying to talk to me, and I just was ignoring them. And then this guy just said, "Are you okay?" And it was the way he said it, and I was just like, "No!" <laughs> I started like going, "Oh my god, help me, help me, get me out of here." And he got all of his oil worker friends and they literally like lifted me up and walk- and walked out the door with me. And the girls were screaming and there was a massive fight and wow. it just kicked off. And at that point, that's why I knew actually it was definitely, you know, you, you kind of know when you just can't leave somewhere. You walk in and then you just like, I'm in trouble now. And I think that would have sent most people back home. But for me, it was like, it just made me more stubborn. <laughs> it, it's funny I speak to a lot of adventurers and the really honest ones often say it's not the people that have supported them through the years that are their biggest strength. It's actually often the people who've tried to stop them or told them that they can't do something. And there was something about giving up at that stage. It was something about if I just stopped and decided to go home after that and got scared or decided to do things easier and an easier way, I wouldn't have been doing myself a service. So... I think those are make and break times when those things happen. And then literally within days, I was on a bus and very sadly, somebody died on the bus next to me. And I think, well, they got on, this bus was supposed to take 18 hours. It took two days in the end. The, the, The guy got on halfway through and sat in the seat next to me and was obviously, he was obviously very ill. I gave him some water and stuff, but I mean, I didn't really, I, I had a smattering of Swahili at that point. And just, yeah, when I woke up, at the next sort of, you know, we got into the city and we, I woke up, there was a kanga, a piece of material over his head. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm, you know, this is going to happen to me if I get ill. So people are just going to not be able to communicate with me and mm. just leave me. And ah, <laughs> But those two things happened and they it kind of made me sort of want to fight harder to stay there. And I was like, no, I'm going to make the most of this. And it's, I'm not, what I'm not going to do is give up. Was there an element of enjoying the fear of that as well? I mean, those are both good stories, even though, you know, if they'd have ended worse for you, they'd be terrible stories. I think, obviously, the guy dying on the bus, there's no there's no positive way to kind of come out of that. Apart from, I suppose, maybe just... A, just... It's an adventure, is what I'm getting at. You know, you were talking about how you, your life at home sounded kind of pedestrian and you were a bit trapped by it. And then you go out there and the whole point of being there is you're confronted by unusual things. Two extraordinary things happen to you. That's exciting. I think we are all actually hardwired to want to be in situations that test us, even if we don't think we do. And 
we all have our own levels of tolerance and levels that we can deal with before sort of stress that promotes growth becomes stress that promotes traumatic Mm. um, disorder kind of later. So the whole kidnap scenario was something that I probably dined out. I can't really remember now. I bet I dined out on it for ages afterwards. (laughs) You know, it was the whole idea that I was going into something that wasn't planned, that wasn't decided for me by someone else. I think what a lot of people suffer from is that they feel that their life is just kind of predestined almost it's kind of decided by someone else and you get into a rut and then you can't get back you can't get out of it there's no escape especially once you get a mortgage and have have family and and you know things like that it's so definitely living adventurously is hugely important to me but I think it's actually important to everyone when I came back from that first trip I was a changed person at that time I saw it as travel and adventure and you know expeditions what it really is it's about adventure because you can find adventure here in, the, in this country. You can find adventure everywhere. It's about living adventurously. All the way through university, I did expeditions. So I joined an expedition in both the summers and got my kind of built up my skills, um, assistant leading. I set, I, and then I led my own uh, expedition, of my, the first expedition I led myself when I was 21. And what, what kind of skills are they? Because, I mean, people listening to this, we've seen Bear Grylls saying, drink your own piss. I mean, is it that sort of thing? <laughs> I wouldn't recommend drinking your own piss at any time uh, ever. I don't think Bear's ever done that either, um, to be fair to him. The skills are planning, logistics, routines. It's understanding environments. So I sort of specialised in jungle and desert. So that's what I'm really good at. And what are the big challenges of the desert? I'm guessing hydration. Exactly. In a desert, everything's about water. All the logistics, everything depends on where you can get resupplied with water, essentially where you can find natural su- supplies or whether you actually you actually have to go and get it or be supplied. Navigation is extremely hard in, in a jungle, so that is one thing that often determines the logistics of a jungle expedition. If you're somewhere like the Amazon, you've got loads of rivers, you're all good, but you are bound, if you're trying to cross a particular area and you want to leave the rivers, then you have to find other means of um, navigating. And also the rivers move, <laughs> especially in flooded forests. They can be in a completely different place each year. So the maps are meaningless. This, the kind of claustrophobia of, of jungles is hard for a lot of people, especially climbers, I found. People who are used to being in big mountains and big vistas with big skies find jungles terrible. They, they tend to not like them. I love them because they're full of life. The fact that they're full of life is a, is a big challenge and is a huge part of the planning involved. So, you know, you've got all the creepy callies and snakes and things like that. And you just have to be very good with your routines and your your discipline, really, as to how you operate in a jungle. Because people always think that you know you get, you'll get bitten by snakes. That's one of your biggest risks. Actually, it's all kind of insects just bothering you. More likely, things like malaria. There are some really great parasites in jungles <laughs> that can be debilitating, though, at times. Now, exploring in Tanzania does appeal to me. I can see the exotic appeal of that. It's a beautiful place. The climate is generally quite nice. And, you know, yes, there's a risk of things like malaria, but you can take jabs before you go. But when you talk about extreme conditions, that's something that, if I'm honest, just does not appeal to me. I I get sort of hot and sweaty and irritable if I have to search under the stairs for too long to find my trainers. The idea (laughs) that I would volunteer to spend a day you know, with snow and grit raining down on my face or in conditions that are extremely hot or extremely cold with pain on my back carrying stuff, I just know I would actually hate that. 
Am I wrong or am I right to know that I'm not the right person to do that kind of thing? Have you ever done that? No. Well, then how can you possibly know? I, well, because I just, in the same way that I've never done skydiving, but I know that I'd chip myself on the plane. And... Oh, you'd love that as well. <laughs> I think everyone has their Everest. It might be Snowden or it might be Everest. So everyone has their limits. We, as human beings, we, we evolved and our bodies and our psyche evolved to be under both environmental pressure you know it's actually good for us there's loads of studies that show that getting hot or getting cold going through those sorts of changes environment is extremely good for us it's good for our long-term health and also there's loads of studies about psychologically it's very good for us to be tested so I challenge you actually and I think you should go and uh, Try something like that before you say don't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't ever take to it. Well, okay, so what is the right kind of thing to try, to dabble with? Because Everest is not a good one to start with, I'm guessing. What should someone like me who, you know, likes a walk, you know, likes a pretty vista, but doesn't really want to confront the idea of severe discomfort, what's a good starting expedition? I think the word expedition might be throwing us off here. A starting adventure, mm-hmm. you can do all sorts of things right here in Britain. It doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. Mm-hmm or time, or, or put yourself in major danger or anything. Great, where should I go? There's loads of cool things in London, like walking over the O2, or whitewater rafting, or abseiling down the Olympic Park, that big statue. Mm-hmm. There's loads of cool things like that. I think there's a lot of benefit in getting out into nature. So there's, have you ever tried wild swimming, for example? No, that that I'd probably be all right with. It's about getting out of your comfort zone. So you don't have to go and beast yourself and like be miserable but you have to I think it's good to push yourself try new experiences it's so extremely good for us to do that so in London say you can go to the serpentine and swim in the early morning mist Mm -hmm. you know get get up in the dark get down there before anyone else go in as the you know as soon as they open Mm. and it's a spiritual experience and it will be testing and it'll be cold because the sun won't be out and you could even build up through the summer and this autumn and you could start swimming in the winters i mean i can see that would be a beautiful experience yeah i mean it's also full of feces and frog spawn presumably i mean in, in a way isn't technology a good thing we've got swimming pools now just go for a swim there well the serpentine isn't it's a swimming club so you can literally go outdoor swimming there and it's the great thing about it is it's clean it's kind of hard to put into words unless you've tried it But the difference is it's clinical, it's a kind of man-made environment, it's all a bit safe, it's all a bit known. You go swimming in a lake or a river and you can start at the Serpentine or Hampstead Ponds. You can basically start somewhere where it's official while outdoor swimming Mm. and therefore there's a lifeguard, there's all sorts of water quality checks, you know. Um, It's kind of a safe start for Mm. wild swimming and you can lie on your back in the water and look up at the sky and you can maybe see a, a swan or some ducks or it's because it's not man-made and it's because it's not regulated and rule-driven and you can be surprised by it and we as humans we're supposed to live a bit more like that we're not supposed to live in boxes looking at screens knowing what we're going to do next day the next hour it's exciting basically there you go maybe it's just exciting so your life, like everyone else's, does involve a lot of living in boxes, looking at screens and working out what you can do the next Absolutely. day. Absolutely. How do you inject mini-adventures into your day-to-day? Like so many things in life, you just make time for it. We all say we're going to do stuff, and then we don't. 
we're all going to get fitter, we're all going to be slimmer, we're all going to be cleverer, we're all going to read more, we're all going to be, you know, watch the news more, whatever it is, we're all going to better ourselves every year, aren't we? And then we don't, we don't go to the gym, we don't do whatever we said we were going to do. Well, the great thing about going and having adventures is it's not only good for us, but it's also fun. Mm. So it's a lot easier to stick to. So my sort of top tips would probably be tell some of your, like find some mates that want to do stuff as well, because it's a lot easier. Once you've said to your friends, yeah, we're going to go camping that weekend or we're going to go and swim in the serpentine before we go to work on Wednesday. Let's do that. And it's in the diary. And it's in the diary and they're going to come with you. And it's or even if they won't come with you, you just tell everyone you're going to do it. Mm. Then you've got the embarrassment factor of not getting on and doing it. And once you do it, you'll love it and you'll want to do more. There's also, and this is totally not the reason you should be doing it, I'm sure, but there's the validation factor now, isn't there, with social media? I mean, a lot of people go to extreme places so they can take a selfie and post it up on Instagram. But I suppose in a way that's a good thing if it's got them up the hill. Yeah, it's a bit sad, but but it is. It's Maybe it's just human nature. Oh, I don't know. Or maybe social media is making us more narcissistic. Um, I think there's suggestions that it is. There's even, apparently, uh, I've heard that there's even a, a bunch of people who, who simply go to places in order to get pictures of themselves there. Yeah. They kind of get out of the car park and get a snap. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, they don't really go and experience it. It strikes me as being a bit sad and a bit of completely not what it's about. But as you say, maybe anything to help people break the inertia is a good thing. And what about you professionally? At what point did you decide this could be a job? not a hobby, not a thing that you do at the weekends to fulfil yourself on the side of whatever else you do, but that you could be a professional explorer? Initially, I paid for them. I saved up the money. I went on my expeditions. I paid to be an assistant leader on expeditions, so I paid you know, part, part of the price sort of thing to be an assistant. I, I built up my experience, and then eventually people started paying for my um, insurance and my flights as and, and free you know free expedition place if I helped lead and then eventually I started getting paid but it was never really a conscious decision of like this is going to be my career it's more that I just have to get adventuring I just have to get onto these adventures whether I pay for it or whether I get paid doesn't really matter as long as I can keep going so I still do expeditions for free if I think they're brilliant and you know, and I, I pay for expeditions, I get paid for other expeditions. It's as long as it all works out, I'm not I've never I'm never gonna be wealthy in money terms, but I think I'm wealthy in experience terms. And in terms of shepherding around T V crews, what shows have you worked on that we might have heard of? Who have you ended up supervising on an expedition? So I ended up running remote film crews all over the world with Ray Mears, Bear Grylls, Chris Ryan and David Attenborough. And then I did stuff in Britain, like Coast, the Coast series. I don't mm. know if you've ever come across that. That series, Coast, actually got me to start looking at Britain in the way that I'd looked at the rest of the world for all my career. Mm. I'd, I'd always gone abroad for adventure. I was al- I'd always gone abroad for, for feeling alive. I was always living between expeditions. But then I was like, wow, Britain's amazing. It's got a load more than I have ever realised. Just this year, I've been swimming with seals down in Cornwall, I've been sleeping in a snow hole up in Scotland. That sounds really grim. <laughs> no, it's wicked. You'd love it. Really? You would actually love it. <laughs> Even Edinburgh in August is a bit cold for me. There's this thing in, in adventure called Type 2 Fun. 
So type one fun is fun at the time, fun afterwards. Type two fun is not fun at the time, but it is fun afterwards. <laughs> and type three fun is not fun at any time. Right. So there's a lot of type two fun in adventure, definitely. Yeah. But that's the stuff that makes you grow. And, and that's the stuff that makes you realize what you can do and get, what you can get through. And yeah, sleeping in a snow hole can sometimes be type two. But there's amazing camaraderie that comes with that. You know, you make such great friends doing adventures because you come through adversity together. And what about short haul trips, you know, from Britain to Europe? So people listening to this, they've got a full time job. They're not going to go to Tanzania for the weekend, but they could go to Italy. They could go to France. They could go to Denmark. Give us some some ideas for things people can do to go and explore this summer. So there's loads of lovely hiking. You know, you've got the Dolomites. You've got the kind of um, ancient forests of kind of Belarusia and around there, you know, this that still have bison and wolf and stuff. You can go kayaking down the Ardèche Valley in France. There's so many things. You can go um, water skiing and water wakeboarding and stuff off Saint-Tropez. What are the places that have surprised you the most? The, the really big surprise I've had is discovering Britain. I spent 15 years of my career and my life running away from Britain to find excitement. And then in the last five years, I've been finding excitement right here. I mean, what's the riskiest thing looking back on it now? you actually think I can't believe I did that probably rowing around Britain that was a much more dangerous than our, any of us had ever realized was it was going to be because because we have the busiest shipping lanes in the world we have the strongest com- conflicting currents and we didn't actually know what we were doing all of us were kind of aware I think that we well definitely we were aware because just before we left I was like it, it had sunk in that we weren't ready for this I tried to find a sailor to join our team and I never found that sailor. So in our team, there was lots of clever, competent people, but we didn't have the skills to go out to sea for what turned out to be two months, nonstop, unsupported, in a little 24-foot boat uh, with no engine and no sail, just paddles, (laughs) just oars. And uh, we nearly died several times on that trip. And when when you're in charge and you're the skipper... You don't want to be in that situation. So I had to be really clear to, to everyone. And yeah, so we nearly got run down by a couple of boats a couple of times. Nearly got swept onto the rocks. It, it was terrifying at times. Hmm. And I won't do it again. <laughs> Mostly because I've done it now. So why do it again? But um, nearly killing yourself is not fun. This whole idea of, of pushing yourself and going outside of your boundaries and going outside of your comfort zone is important but by doing that a lot you take calculated risks and that was the first time in years that i had miscalculated and i i but only yeah miscalculated it a bit definitely belinda kirk and if she's inspired you to make your life a little more adventurous, why not take a look at her non-profit Explorers Club? It's called Explorers Connect, and if you become a member of that, you'll find out about events, challenges and talks. Check it out at explorersconnect.com. Alex Fox is up next, so brace yourself for a Foxhole Feedback Special after this. The moment is here. It is time for our Foxhole Feedback Special. Are you excited, Alex Fox? I'm permanently excited when I'm around you, Ollie. It's I the, don't it's blame the Foxhole you. finale. It is. Well, yeah, no, but not forever. 
Just for this season. Just just for our 50th episode. Uh, but for our 50th episode, we thought we'd look back. We've never done this before because we often talk about subjects on the show, sexual subjects. Some of them are quite niche. Some of them are really mainstream. But then we don't return to the same topic again because it's kind of like, oh, well, we've done our threesomes bit. We've done our bit about polyamory. We've done our bit about small penises. And I wanted to know whether this has affected you out there and what your reaction was to Alex's advice over the two years now of this podcast. So, Alex, are you ready to hear how people have responded to the last 50 foxholes? I am salivating at the opportunity to revisit people's niches, Ollie. (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, here is our first piece of feedback. I'm quite nervous. Uh, Don't be. I've helped people. Don't be. I hope no one's written in and gone, it's god-awful and now my wang has dropped off and it's all your fault, Fox. Don't be nervous. I'm a gentle and considerate podcaster. Uh, this email's come in from Anonymous, who says, uh, You answered my question, Alex, in Season 3, Episode 2. Season 3, Episode 2, what was the subject? It's fine. No, I wouldn't expect sorry. you to really remember that. Uh, it was about pleasing my boyfriend who had a smoking fetish. Oh, That yes. one, yeah. Alex suggested that I try an e-cigar in the bedroom. E-cigar, I do remember that. E-cigar, cigar. <laughs> uh, and I'm happy to say that this has been greatly received. Yes. Although it's not as good as the real thing. She's put that in quotation marks. I think that's from the horse's mouth there. It tastes much better. It gives out a lot of smoke. It doesn't make me nauseous. And it really excites my man. Uh, On special occasions, we'll bust out a real cigar. But I now take things a lot slower so I can enjoy it. And there's no pressure of sex right after. I remember now, she wants to indulge that fetish without actually damaging her lungs or or giving herself potential health problems in the future. Um, And making the curtain smell. Did you know that there's actually dating sites, particularly for people who like to vape these days? Oh, really? So uh, not not smoking fetish particularly? It's more people who are enthusiastic about vaping. Mm. So they're brought together by their shared interest. And since we spoke about smoking during sex, have you discovered anything else about this? Uh, Well, I've got a couple of dating ideas for this couple, in fact. If they like the idea of being teased in public, they could go to one of those shisha cafes and then she could smoke in front of him publicly and kind of tantalise and tease him that way. uh, And then they can go home and get it on in a a cloud of smoke. Any venue where uh, foreplay can involve Turkish delight is a winner for me. Turkish delight and then some afternoon delight. The HH guy has written in to us as Him well. From steps. Um, no. HH, uh, this is the bloke we spoke to the other week with the micro penis. Oh, but it, hypergonadotropic hi- hypergonadism. Exactly, yes. Hypergonadism. My God, that is, it's quite a tongue twister. Trips off the tongue. Uh, he says, thank you, Alex, for the very kind advice. It was really nice just to be able to tell someone without fear of being laughed at. Mm. And you have given me some new ideas for what to do next, but you also confirmed that some of the thoughts that I had been having were probably on the right track. So thanks again. No promises, but I may drop you a line if and when I make any progress. Oh, please do. Uh, I have to admit, I haven't heard from so many people with this uh, particular situation. So it's always great when we get these letters where I have the opportunity to learn something and uh, and expand my repertoire of knowledge, uh, as well as hopefully helping people. I discovered something really interesting about people with HH, actually. Mm-hmm. Some of them also have the symptom that they have an inability to smell. Why would those two things be linked? I'm not entirely sure, but That's it's intriguing, bizarre. isn't it? So undeveloped genitals... And correlates with inability to smell. Yeah. It doesn't work the other way, though. If somebody can't <laughs> smell, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not that packing they much in their undeveloped pants. undeveloped genitals. Understood, yeah. James has been in touch to say, Alex, I wanted to drop you a quick note to say thank you for your section on polyamory. 
Uh, about four years ago, I entered into a poly relationship with two other guys, and it was the best thing I've ever done. My two boyfriends have been together for 15 years, but me entering into their relationship was very organic and not something any of us were particularly aiming for. I've never been happier, and I can't imagine my life without them. Well, that is completely luscious That's to a hear. success story. Yeah, a huge success story, with lots of sucking into success by the sounds of things as well. Um, have you heard of a woman called Rosie Wilby? I have not. She is a stand-up comedian who's just uh, published a book called Is Monogamy Dead? That's all about her personal uh, experiences and adventures with trying things like polyamory. It brings up some really interesting questions. Fair to say it wasn't plain sailing for her. It wasn't plain sailing, uh, but then again I think she uh, rather enjoyed being at sea. And actually James continues in his email to say the thing that's different in his relationship with these two chaps compared to the kind of relationships we were discussing, is that he is duogamous. Uh, So he and his two boyfriends are only physically and romantically involved with each other and nobody else. So they still draw the line somewhere, which is interesting. Yeah, they're a self-contained unit. So even though they're having a relationship with more than one person, they won't be sleeping or or having romantic attachments with additional people there. He says, one of my boyfriends also has an 18-year-old daughter uh, who's absolutely amazing and titled our iMessage conversation Modern Family. Hmm. And ultimately, we are just like any other family, except there's more of us. Quite often when people hear about polyamory, they immediately think, slut. But Alex, you did a really, really great job uh, in quashing some of the stigma that comes along with the concept. In the same way he says that we've been fighting for years for homosexuality to become normalised and accepted, it would be amazing if someday the idea of relationships with more than one person became a bit more normal and a bit less shocking. I hope so too, and I think it's important that we discuss these things, uh, not only so that such people can gain acceptance, but also so that they can have equal rights in terms of things like uh, legality and uh, access to pensions or access to healthcare, that kind of thing. Well, he actually does go on to say that he read about a three-way marriage in Colombia the other Uh day. Yeah, this was three guys called uh, Manuel Bermudez, I hope my pronunciation is right here, uh, Victor Hugo Prada, what a name, and Alejandro Rodriguez. Those three men married each other, but actually originally there was a fourth man in their polyamorous relationship called Alex, who really sadly died from stomach cancer a few years ago. It was his death that actually prompted them to look into marrying because they had extreme problems uh, accessing the money that he'd uh, left for Mm -hmm. them, uh, getting access to things like his belongings, which obviously had great sentimental value to them. Uh, They really campaigned to get married so there would be no problems for them in the future. But by doing so, they've also set a really encouraging precedent for other people who are in that situation. Here's another piece of feedback. This one is about when we were talking about... Partners with different libidos. Oh, okay. This um, comes up a lot. And uh, yes, this person who's, who's remained anonymous said, I would like to recommend the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Oh, it's a famous one. Is and it? a brilliant one. Yeah, she's excellent. He says, it really helped me to understand my wife and she, having eventually read it, to understand herself. I really do recommend that if you've got some time on your hands, take a look at this book. Like I say, it's a classic. It's it's A lot of people recommend this and for good reason. If you go on her website, though, um, you can actually download a load of free PDFs and they're really good. One of which involves the idea of mapping your partner's stress. We've talked before about about how stress and anxiety and depression can really be huge barriers to Mm. sexual understanding and and sexual wellness. She suggests that you write a list of 10 things that wind your partner up 
and 10 things that help to chill them out. And that might sound a bit formulaic, but actually bearing that in mind and having it at the forefront of your head all the time can really, really help for you to cater to your partner's needs and be more aware of them. Um, she's all, she also talks about intergluteal penetration, basically lubing up the peach seam between someone's butt cheeks uh, and then either running your penis in between them without actually going into the anus, just, mm. just up and down the butt crack, uh, or using a sex toy or your hands to stimulate that particular area. And it is, it's an underrated part of the body, I think, the butt crack. It may be. I mean, you've jumped very quickly there from here's a book to read if you've got a differing sex drive with your partner to would you like to stimulate the gluteal muscles with your penis. I but have, I imagine over the course of a book, that makes more sense. I have special skills. What um, can I say? My segues are unprecedented. Uh, sometimes a lot of your advice, Alex, I think as well, just comes down to communication, doesn't it? Having an open and honest dialogue with your partner, saying what you want or what the problem is, um, often outside of the bedroom. Yeah. Um, and Rebecca's been in touch uh, in response to a discussion. You might remember this was last season, actually. And we were talking about someone being punched in the face. It was a man, a young chap being punched in the face uh, by his girlfriend 10 or 20 years ago. And only just now looking back on it and realising that in a way that was, you know, he was the victim of physical violence during sex. Yeah, I really vividly remember that letter. Uh, he was sort of treating it as though it was a bit of a joke and laughing about it, which is uh, a common way of framing a traumatic situation. But as we read out, the mail we were both quite shocked at yeah. what had gone on there and also you as well talked personally about your experiences of something similar when you were younger mm-hmm. um, and Rebecca's reacted to that she says um, I just wanted to thank you Alex for your open and honest discussion about your experience of violence during an intimate moment uh, when I was 16 I was punched so hard in the face during sex I was left with a bruised face and bloody lip to this day 15 years later I still feel sick to think about it But she says, I reacted in much the same way as you, brushing it under the carpet, move on. And that really is something that's resonated with people, isn't it? Because actually, that is probably how most people react to something that's a one-off. If you're not part of an abusive relationship, they'd just rather not talk about it. It's hugely common. And then it can, in later life, add to the sense of shame and regret and fear surrounding a traumatic situation because you're then angry with yourself for not reacting in the way that, as an older adult, you think you ought to have done. So again, as a victim, you can continue to blame yourself for situation that really wasn't your your fault at all no exactly but the good news is she says she's taken that bad experience in her life and has used it to to ultimately shape her sex life in a good way Uh, she says since then i've always taken a lead role in sexual experiences i think this is my need to be in control and avoid anything like that happening again but i now know what i like and what my boundaries are and then she says what almost could be a catchphrase for the show really sex is much better when all involved can openly discuss what they want before and throughout any activities It's really brilliant to hear that she's now in a positive place with this. Um, If that ever changes, I would absolutely encourage her to go and speak to a specialist about it. Um, I think we should all bear in mind that sometimes the way that we feel about the past, it can ebb and flow. You can be okay with something one day and then not another day for whatever reason. You might have another experience that triggers thoughts. Uh, Something might happen that causes you to recontextualise a past experience. All of that is completely normal and healthy and there are the loads of help out there for you should you feel that that's something that's good for you. In fact, I should probably say it's brilliant that people write in to me, but I'm really aware that I can't always answer questions straight away. 
If you feel that you need to speak to somebody immediately, there's actually a brilliant, really thorough list of all sorts of helplines for lots of different scenarios. Uh, If you head to supportline.org.uk, in addition to giving links for people who've been through an experience themselves, it also offers uh, suggestions of help for people like partners or families of people who've experienced sexual violence or trauma. So there's loads and loads of links there and many of them have uh, hotlines that you can call immediately immediately, any time of the day or night. Uh, Someone else at the lighter end of the spectrum who's been in touch to say that they've benefited from uh, some communication with their partner as a result of your advice uh, was Mr Yiff, the guy who liked his furry furry erotic art. If you don't remember this, listeners, it's worth going back through our archive. It's it's basically people who get aroused by looking at Scooby-Doo. He says that um, he did speak to his partner about it. Uh She's not interested in joining him, but she fully understands that he wants to look at it on his own. So that's good, isn't it? Excellent. So he's free to jack off to his pictures of anthropomorphised animals. uh, And she's probably, well, God knows what she's looking at. She's probably reading a good book. You know that I have a bit of a soft spot, or I should say a hard spot, for unusual types of pornography. I find this completely fascinating. Uh, There's a few... I've come across, so to speak, lately, mm. Ollie. Let me tell you about consentical porn. Okay. Okay. Sounds like something Brian Cox would have invented. <laughs> well, there's all sorts of people. Cox, Cox yes, yes, all yeah, right, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, well, you may have heard of hentai, which is the sort of Japanese cartoon pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a subset of that is called, uh, let me see if I'm going to say this right, Shokuju Gukan, which is tentacle rape. It's, it's the sea Tentacle mon- rape? Yeah. It's sea monsters and mythological imaginations imagined creatures with uh, all sorts of tentacles coming out with suckers on and everything. This theme of being raped by a hideous creature is is of quite a strong flavour that that tends to run through this genre of pornography. For some people, they find that although they like the drawings of the creatures, they don't like that non-consensual element or ostensibly non-consensual element. So there are certain groups on the internet, unsurprisingly one of them's on Reddit, but they're all sort all over the place, uh, where fans of tentacle porn are producing their own consentical tentacle porn cons- called consenticles, where, <laughs> where they draw pictures of women who are exceedingly happy uh, to be done up the foof by um, a piece of squid. Well, that is certainly a niche that people can explore in the next two months or so whilst we're off air. Uh, If you have a question of sex for Alex for season six, and, you know, fingers crossed, seven, eight and nine, we hope to do at least another 50 of these, uh, then uh, all the details can be found on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click on feedback. And Alex, we should take this moment, should we not, to give an extra big, special, horny lubed thank you to mycondom.com yes i am going to smear lubricant all the way up past my elbow and even right up to my shoulder in order to slither my arm around theirs and hug them with all of my might because they are wonderful they are great if you're gonna have sex go to mycondom.com first they sponsor the foxhole and that really does mean folks that we wouldn't be able to bring this section to you without their patronage Uh, And also they provide some excellent prophylactics. Uh, They do. Uh, One type of condom that you can get from them is called Mannix, um, which is the sort of... (laughs) James Dean Bradfield's expanded into safe sex? (laughs) No, thankfully not. I can't imagine a more depressing kind of uh, coupling than than that. Uh, No, it's actually uh, the French version of Mates. So is it any different to the mates you can buy in Britain? You can get different varieties to slide over your baguette. Oh, can you? Mm-hmm. What, do you what do they have? Camembert flavour. <laughs> <laughs> if you request it, Ollie, yeah. someone will create it. Um, <laughs> 
MyCondom.com is the very definition of build it and they will come. And remember, you can get an unbelievable 15% <laughs> off all of your purchases at MyCondom.com, even when we're off air, by using our special discount code, which is Foxhole. I would have said that link was cheesy, but it was appropriately so. Uh, Alex, thank you for the last 50 episodes. They've been e-damn good. Have you? Oh, God. A huge thank you to everyone who's listening and everyone who's sent in their questions. Don't forget as well, I'm always really keen to hear your stories, your feedback, your thoughts about sex. Anything you've got to say, send it my way. And with that, we have reached the end of this season of The Modern Man. Thank you for supporting the show financially through your beer money, pragmatically through your feedback and evangelically through your iTunes reviews. We are doing this for you, man fans. Thanks. Our theme is by Django Django. It's from their eponymous debut album. And let's end our 50th edition in some style because our record of the week is from one of my favourite bands, Los Campesinos. They're great. I've followed them ever since I heard them on the Best of MySpace podcast back in 2008. The track is called Hung Empty. It's from their album Six Scenes, which is out now on Wichita Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. We'll see you for season six in the autumn. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.